0: A week of urgency in the fight against the coronavirus.
1: And with an increasing number of cases all across the country, uh, we are likely to see the president uh, reinstitute another 15 days of guidelines issued by the CDC.
0: When can America reopen
2: for business?
1: Your mayors, your county commissioners, and in some respects
2: your governor is going to be making the decisions.
0: And what's in it for you after Congress approves a $2 trillion rescue bill?
3: that helps people make a car payment, house payment, you know, loans, whatever they have, and keeps them generally afloat. Having
4: trouble getting a grip during the coronavirus pandemic? You're not alone. And one grief expert says you're perfectly normal. Well, in
5: abnormal times, doing normal things seems helpful.
0: With John Decker, Rachel Sutherland, and Chad Pergram, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. The global coronavirus pandemic has hit new heights in the U.S. It has been devastating. Thousands of cases now confirmed. People are sick in all 50 states. In hotspots like New York, the death toll is reaching historic totals. Dozens a day in some cases, as hospitals warn the surge is threatening critical life-saving equipment. The public health crisis goes beyond just how each of us feel our health. President Trump has directed guidelines for 15 days to stop the spread. So it has been another week of social distancing. For most Americans, working from home, teaching our kids from home, Zoom and Skype calls, all while avoiding some of our favorite gathering places. For me, that's a diner within walking distance of my house. And I'm used to sitting at the same spot at the counter every weekend, always with my son. Sometimes my dad joins, too. But like every restaurant still operating in the greater Washington, D.C. area... That diner is now carry-out only, certainly not seeing the usual number of customers. So I get it. Many of us are starting to feel restless, cooped up. President Trump says he's hearing from Americans who want to get back to work. And he wants a lot of us going back to work by Easter.
5: That's April 12th. Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. We're going for a while, but we win, we win. I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country, and we're all working very hard to make that a reality. We'll be meeting with a lot of people to see if it can be done. Easter is a very special day for many reasons. For me, for a lot of a lot of our friends, that's a very special day. And what a great timeline this would be.
0: The president says any new guidelines issued, likely next week after that 15 days to stop the spread campaign ends, would be based on the advice and data from top medical experts. One of those experts, Dr. Anthony Fauci, at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was asked at a White House briefing this week about that
5: Easter timetable. The country is a big country and there are areas of the country, and I I refer to this in my opening remarks, that we really need to know more about what the penetrance is there. So if we do the kind of testing we're doing, and testing will always be associated by identification, isolation, and contact tracing, and you find, after a period of time, that there are areas that are very different from other areas of the country, you may not want to essentially treat it as just one force for the entire country, but look at flexibility in different areas. So I think people might get the misinterpretation. You're just going to lift everything up and even somebody's going like that. You, I mean, that, that's not going to happen. It's going to be looking at the data.
0: Earlier this week on the Fox News Rundown podcast, be sure to listen and subscribe. Plug, plug. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was asked about the Easter timeline by host Lisa Brady.
2: Well, it's important to remember in the U.S. system that we are locally-led, state-managed, and federally supported. And so the local governments, your mayors, your county commissioners, and in some respects your governors are going to be making the decisions about mandatory social distance, distancing or community mitigation. What the president did with his 15 days to, control this, to, to slow the spread um, was provide guidance and recommendations. No mandates in there but rather recommendations to communities around the country. As we come to the end of those 15 days, uh, the president's public health advisors as well as his economic advisors will be looking at the data and advising him, and he'll be trying to, to wrestle with the very tough balance between public health and economics.
0: Our White House correspondent, John Decker, has been asking questions and getting answers all week to a lot of those questions about lockdowns, best practices and steps the administration says have been taken to get additional resources for hospitals currently in short supply. What is the White House goal here once this initial 15 days has elapsed?
1: Well, It seems to me that uh, based upon the number of cases that we're seeing, and the president says that his decision will be based upon the data, and with an increasing number of cases all across the country, uh, we are likely to see the president uh, reinstitute another 15 days of guidelines issued by the CDC. That makes the most sense. But it's also important to remember, Jared, that the president did not turn off the switch of America. Nor can he turn on the switch of America. It's up to the nation's governors and the nation's mayors who essentially turn the switches off, as well as private industry in terms of what happens in the weeks ahead. Can we turn everything back on by April the 12th, which is uh, Easter Sunday? I'm like the president, Jared. I'm an optimistic person, but I'm also a realist, and I don't think that that's a realistic uh, goal that will be met.
0: Well, you make a good point that these decisions have not been made at the federal level. They, they, these are decisions that are being made by mayors, that are being made by county executives, that are being made by governors. Um, here in the D.C. area, uh, D.C. businesses and schools, Virginia uh, businesses and schools, Maryland uh, businesses and schools, all of them are under orders from various state and local officials that would seem that they are going to be closed beyond April 12th
1: well that's exactly right and it's not just you know if you look and see the governors who've uh, had these stay-at-home orders it's not just democratic governors it's republican governors mm-hmm. as well uh, and you have to keep that in mind for you know anybody who suggests well this is all a plot you know to hurt president trump and to hurt his reelection chances these are governors that are looking out for the safety of their citizens these are mayors that are looking out for the safety of their citizens And in the District of Columbia, where I live, uh, the mayor has essentially said everything is shut down through the third week in April. So it seems to me that the president can uh, wish that everything is back to normal by April the 12th. But governors and mayors will do what they want to do as it relates to their citizens without paying that much attention to what the federal government wants them to do. So
0: what is it that you would expect from the CDC, from the federal government? Would it sort of be guidelines saying if you meet different thresholds, you can think about doing this or that? Is that kind of what, what we're talking about?
1: Oh, I don't think so. I, will, will the guidelines change from what was issued uh, almost two weeks ago? I, I don't see why they would. We have yet to reach a flattening of the curve of new cases. And until we reach that flattening of the curve of new cases, based upon what all the medical advisors say, Dr. Deborah Burks who's on the Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's on the Coronavirus Task Force, it doesn't make any sense to change the guidelines uh, when we'll see, they seem to be working or they could be working and we'll get, you know, uh, an idea from the data that comes in. This all should be data driven. It should not be based upon uh, a hope or a wish that's just on the calendar. I I have that same hope and wish as well. I think we all do. We'd all love to go back to work and be back to normal. But uh, if we're still in a position where the spread of the coronavirus is still very high uh, and it's still very contagious and more cases uh, are coming up each and every day, then it doesn't make any sense to change those guidelines.
0: One thing I think I have heard from the briefings, and and you've been watching these a lot more closely than I have, so I'll I'll defer to your answer here, is the idea that uh, the coronavirus is not as bad in some places as others. So would there be a way for the CDC to say, listen, in this area, maybe it doesn't have to be as severe as social distancing is concerned. In this area, it does need to be more severe as social distancing is concerned.
1: Well, the president has said this before. It is true that it is not bad in certain places as it is in uh, Louisiana or in New York State or in California. That being said, does it make sense for the president uh, next week to have a campaign rally in Idaho? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It seems to me, look at what's happened around the world. Uh, The U.K. has issued a nationwide stay-at-home order. It doesn't you know, see what's happening in London and compare what's happening in London to what's happening in Covington or what's happening in Cambridge. Uh, it's nationwide. Canada has done the same thing. Australia has done the same thing. Many European countries, including uh, Belgium and France and Germany, have done the same thing. That makes the most sense. And they, too, have... Uh, health professionals who are experts in infectious diseases that are advising the leaders of each of those countries.
0: Hoping you can uh, clarify one other point, because we talked about uh, the Defense Production Act last week on this podcast. Um, You explained what it meant and what the president was doing by invoking it. There seems to be some confusion, though, about whether or not the president is relying on it. He tweeted Friday morning that he was displeased with General Motors and Ford and other companies who had promised a certain number of ventilators and appear to, to be falling short of that. Has he not ordered private companies to produce ventilators and other medical supplies?
1: We have been told yes uh, by the administration. The administration says there are two instances where the president has indeed invoked Uh, the DPA, as it's known, Uh, yet the administration won't uh, disclose which two instances uh, the DPA has has been invoked and what particular supplies uh, are affected by this presidential order. So uh, based upon what the administration says, uh, the answer is yes, but we don't know where uh, or what uh, this DPA is affecting and, and how it can help out in terms of providing those necessary medical supplies to health uh, care facilities and hospitals around the country that really need them. So the the act would
0: basically allow the, the administration, the, the defense department to, to order the, these materials from, from companies?
1: Well, that's right. Uh, That being said, you know, it's been said and it's true. If you are asking, for instance, Ford, not asking, if you are ordering Ford to say, use the plant, which is now uh, idle, to now manufacture ventilators, Ford may turn around and say, and they have every right to do so, to say, fine, we need some seed money to do that. And we also need, need to negotiate a fair price in which those ventilators are going to be sold. And we will do that, Uh, absolutely. But we don't know of any instance in which the president or the administration has ordered Ford or General Motors to specifically do that. And whether a contract, which is necessary here, a contract has been consummated between the federal government and private industry to manufacture new masks or ventilators or respirators or whatever it is that the federal government believes will be needed to deal with this coronavirus pandemic.
0: A lot of us learning about these things as we go along. Uh, John Decker, I appreciate your your answers and the questions that you've been pressing the administration this past week. Stay
1: safe, stay healthy. You too, Jared. Stay uh, safe and healthy, and we'll talk real soon. Have a great weekend.
0: The president's coronavirus task force has been giving daily updates broadcast and streamed across the country and around the world. Part of a COVID-19 response plan to keep Americans informed. It's also a way for Americans served by the reporters in the room and outside the room to hold the administration accountable for what is being promised and what is being done. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar is a member of that task force. You heard a bit from him last segment but he answered a lot more questions from Lisa Brady earlier this week. And we wanted you to hear what he had to say, how he measures success, and what still has him worried.
2: In terms of testing, over 430,000 tests have been done just in the, the day before yesterday. 65,000 tests uh, done just in one day alone. This is giving us a much better picture of where we stand in terms of the, the disease spread, obviously, Um, Our focus right now is on New York, in particular New York City and surrounding counties. And so we're surging personnel and equipment, materiel in there, working collaboratively with Governor Cuomo and uh, local health officials there to do that. And then supplies. Uh, You know, it's important for folks to remember that we're a private sector economy here, and the medical, surgical, pharmaceutical Uh, supply industry in the United States is a trillion dollars. We have a small strategic national stockpile that buys about half a billion dollars a year of product that could be deployed in the event of a hurricane or tornado, but was never envisioned, funded, intended to replace the trillion-dollar private sector. So, what we're doing now the major priority right now is working with the private sector industry to spool up production to source material from anywhere in the world and get that available into the private sector and surge it to the hot spots where it's most needed
6: yeah and i think like you say many people may not realize you know you can't just say oh i need you know 30,000 ventilators and the federal government can just hand it to you and likewise While there are things that can be done to sort of compel industries to step up and make those things, it just isn't something that happens overnight. And I know the argument's been made in the administration. There's no reason to compel private companies to do something that's already being done when you have the automakers shifting gears, if you will, to make things like ventilators and other companies stepping up to pivot and make masks and sanitizer and things like that. But in terms of cooperation with the states, I mean, will things calm down on that front a bit once FEMA deliveries and once these extra amounts get to where they're going?
2: What we have done in terms of supplies, we very early on got on this, because in January, we started working with the respirator makers. Those are the N95 masks that that you see uh, hospital workers uh, use. Uh, We very early on in January started scaling up from the ability to make 250 million of those in the United States a year to be able to make 640 million in the United States. That's why we've been able to deliver tens of millions of additional respirators into our stockpile in March already, which are supplies that we are able to provide to New York and other hot spots around the country because we are on that early. Uh, we also were able to allow industrial N ninety fives, which are the ones that construction workers and miners use, to be certified to use for healthcare workers. And then surgical masks, those are the more the flimsy gauze like masks that people sometimes tie over their face. Um, we've actually conducted work to show that those can be used in most hospital settings and those are much easier to produce and we worked with great american manufacturers like haynes to invent a cloth version of those surgical masks that is washable and reusable and that they can produce tens and tens of millions of in fast order so we're on this right away under the president's direction we've been producing and as we work with american manufacturers i'm talking with them every day uh, they're all just stepping up to the plate.
6: During Thursday's briefing, the president's coronavirus response coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, pushed back hard on some reporting about shortages, dire enough to spur second thoughts about resuscitating coronavirus patients.
4: To say that to the American people, to make the implication that when they need a hospital bed, it's not going to be there, or when they need that ventilator, it's not going to be there. We don't have an evidence. Of that right now. And it's our job collectively to assure the American people that it's our collective job to make sure that doesn't happen. She
6: also cautions against models that predict big percentages of the population getting infected, emphasizing the importance of reality on the ground instead. But what about the president's push to get America back to work? I asked Secretary Azar if there's any exit strategy or if it's up to states that have stay home orders in place.
2: Well, it's important to remember in the U.S. system that we are locally led, state managed, and federally supported. And so the local governments, your mayors, your county commissioners, and in some respects, your governors, are going to be making the decisions about mandatory social distance, distancing or community mitigation. What the president did with his 15 days to control this, to, to slow the spread, um, was provide guidance and recommendations. No mandates in there but rather recommendations to communities around the country. As we come to the end of those 15 days, uh, the president's public health advisors as well as his economic advisors will be looking at the data and advising him, and he'll be trying to to wrestle with the very tough balance between public health and economics. And by economics, I mean economic dislocation has its own public health implications for people, unemployment, unemployment, economic distress, all have public health consequences also. So striking the right balance, and it may involve looking at community by community, that uh, communities in a real hot zone like New York City, uh, certain community mitigation steps might be more appropriate there than in a small town in rural Montana, say, that hasn't had any cases.
4: Well,
6: speaking of his team, we hear a lot lately from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. Um But every time Dr. Fauci, in particular, says something that may be taken as contradicting or disagreeing with something the president said, you know, a lot of hay is made about it um, in some circles. How's the morale on the team? You guys all getting along okay?
2: So everyone's getting along okay. Listen, we're in a public health emergency of historic proportions, and that, I think, focuses everybody on the mission. This isn't about egos. It's not about territoriality, parochialism that That has no place here. right now, it's about getting the job done, which is protecting the American people. That's what the president's asked of all of us. It's what all of us are committed to. i've I've seen I've seen nobody who um, doesn't reflect that type of uh, attitude and teamwork. Uh, we put our egos aside and just get the job done.
6: Many people may have heard about you being a former pharmaceutical executive, but they may not know that you spent years in the department. You now run Health and Human Services, both as a general counsel and a deputy. This is not your first rodeo with a major health crisis. I know you were part of the anthrax response in 2001, also the SARS outbreak. How does this compare to those situations?
2: Well, so thank you for mentioning that. And I've been around this department now for 20 years. Uh, I was a key leader as we dealt with 9-11, anthrax attacks, smallpox preparedness, SARS, monkeypox, pandemic flu, Ebola. I was actually one of the key architects uh, of the whole pandemic plan. And so this is exactly what, in 2005, I was one of the people most uh, calling out that we have to prepare for pandemic flu. And so for 15 years, this nation has actually had pandemic planning that's exercised. We have plans. We have playbooks that we use. That's what we've been working through.
6: Is there anything about this whole situation that kind of, keeps you up at night? Is there one area where you're really concerned about falling short or wanting to do better?
2: Well, the number one thing I worry about is protecting our healthcare workers because they're the heroes on the front lines and we want to make sure they've got the equipment to protect themselves because they are going into harm's way. And so that's why the whole of government, whole of economy is focused on producing additional equipment for them to protect them And allocate product to places like New York that are in the hot zone that that need this right now and there'll be other communities that need it in the future. So much of our supply chain, especially on the lower tech items like personal protective equipment, we're bound up in China. That's going to be a lesson for the future is that we cannot make ourselves dependent on one country just because it's low-cost production because we're realizing these medical supplies are actually strategic national supplies and we might have to pay more to make sure that we have access to them in America.
6: Lastly, I just wanted to give you a chance to offer any message that you want to get out to the American public, to this sort of lockdown and concerned, semi lockdown and concerned nation of ours.
2: I'd say two messages. Uh, one is continue to practice social distancing and personal hygiene. Look at the president's 15 days to slow the spread. Common sense. Guidelines for how you in your personal life, workplace, or school, or community can behave to protect yourself and your family. Um, That, I think, is very empowering just to know that you're not at the mercy of external forces only. There are things that you actually can do that make you and your family safer. The second is um, keep hope and understand there's light at the end of this tunnel. All diseases have a natural progression, whether that's seasonality or just the natural burn off of disease, that happens. Um, it will happen. It's happening in other countries. So um, just, just, just always remember that uh, they call it a curve for a reason. There's always a downslope of the curve. It, it will come. We're not there yet, but it'll come.
0: So I mentioned my neighborhood diner that is struggling because of customers staying away. It's one of countless stories. The economy has come to a grinding halt in many sectors. Members of Congress flying into D.C. for a vote we're about to talk about took selfies of empty airplanes. In some instances, a couple of members of Congress made up the entire passenger manifest. The stock market has tumbled. And this week, the Labor Department reported more than 3 million new unemployment claims. 3 million! It's a single-week spike not seen in modern times. In Congress, lawmakers, at least those that are here, have compared the current atmosphere to 9/11 or the great recession of more than a decade ago. And they've been hearing from constituents, business owners who can't make payroll, employees facing layoffs, furloughs, or worse. That urgency was seen in how lawmakers put together and approved what is now the single largest economic recovery bill ever, a 2.2 trillion dollar piece of legislation covering the cost of direct payments for many Americans. Enhanced unemployment insurance, loans, and other financial help for small businesses and large corporations. And what's described as a Marshall Plan level of funding for hospitals. So let's recap how it all came to be. It certainly was not without drama. We'll also talk about what's in it with Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. And Chad, let's talk about how this came to a very dramatic finish. Explain to me the process by which this was approved Friday midday. In the House of Representatives.
3: The issue was this Kevin McCarthy, the Minority Leader, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, along with the Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer. They all wanted to approve this on the House floor via a voice vote. Now, that's not a strange way that they vote in the House of Representatives or a parliamentary trick. It's one of three standard ways you vote in both the House and Senate. You can approve bills and amendments and resolutions by unanimous consent. That's where nobody objects. Have a roll call vote where everybody is recorded, their ballot is recorded on the record. Or you can do it via a voice vote. That's where those in favor shout aye, and those opposed holler nay, and the loudest side prevails. Well, that's what Kevin McCarthy and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others wanted to do because it would make it the most efficient way and maybe limit the number of people who had to come back to Washington, D.C., the office of the attending physician here at the Capitol has been very concerned about bringing back too many members, uh, you know, possibly exposing uh, other people traveling, uh, you know, putting all these members, there are currently 430 members of the House, all together in the same room. So they thought that would be the most efficient way to do it, uh, the healthiest way to do it, and maybe just do it with a skeleton crew on hand. Thomas Massey, very conservative Republican congressman from Northern Kentucky, said, well, we should have a recorded vote. And he also then implied that under Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, the House and Senate cannot do business if there is not a quorum present. Now, what does that mean? 430 members of the House? That means you have to have 216. Well, that's a problem when it goes to the health issue. Uh, That is doing it by the book, but Thomas Massey felt pretty strongly about this. So what they decided to do pretty creatively, this was the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership getting together. They don't get together on much, but they did on this to block Thomas Massey. What they did was they did have a number of people come back in, more than 216. And when Massey asked for that vote, you had members spread out around the House chamber on the floor And then in the public viewing gallery, one floor up the third floor of the U.S. Capitol, you had members spread about there. So they had more than 216 people. So the fact that Thomas Massey, you know, might not have been the healthiest thing to do, but they at least got 216 members plus back into the House chamber. What happens then, and this happens almost in a rote fashion uh, under typical circumstances in the House, is the the chair, if somebody wants a recorded vote, then asks those who are, are with that person to stand. And guess what, Jared? They all sat on their hands. And you have to have, let's get into the parliamentary algebra a little deeper here, you have to have more than half of those who are present in the chamber standing. So let's just say it was 216. We don't really know how many they had. You know, you had to have at least 109 people stand up. Well, nobody stood. And they had already at that point approved it by voice vote because you go to the voice vote first and then somebody can ask for the recorded vote. So this was passed already. And that's how they blocked Thomas Massey. I'm going to add one last thing here. Long time ago, this is a saying I've heard for years up here. Members would say, if you want to write the policy and let me write the process, I will beat you every time. Republicans and Democrats got together to beat Thomas Massey
0: well and it was interesting given this sort of late stage drama because this uh, 2 days prior this 2.2 trillion dollar uh, economic rescue bill stimulus package whatever you, you prefer to call it cleared the United States Senate 96 to nothing ted cruz voted for it bernie sanders voted for it let's talk about why it passed 96 nothing in the in the senate because a 2.2 trillion dollar Uh, Bill Chad is going to have a lot in it so I guess we start with the the big headline which is what the direct payments explain that that's what twelve hundred dollars for an individual twenty four hundred dollars for for a joint file there's a tax credit for for kids as well
3: yeah exactly and they'll be getting those in their direct deposit Uh, that that's probably one of the most important things because that helps people make a car payment house payment you know loans whatever they have And keeps them generally afloat. If nothing else, even though they might not be spending money on a lot of other things right now, it at least gives them confidence that there's some money coming in. I thought that one of the most intriguing things in the entire bill was the extension of the unemployment insurance, Mm -hmm. just not the fact that they extended it. But, you know, there's a lot of people in the so-called gig economy now, people who run Airbnbs, people who are Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, and they make so much of their money that way. And they weren't covered under conventional circumstances by UI, unemployment insurance. And, you know, you have people who have bookings, you know, in San Francisco and other places. They say, you know, 90 percent of our days are booked and now they're down to zero. Well, that was most of their income, and the fact that they are going to address that is important. And, and you know, here's another it, thing. Well,
0: I'll say one more thing about UI, sure. because it was important for getting this over the finish line in the Senate, was uh, the federal government is adding $600 a week to whatever the state pays in unemployment insurance. Right. And that's why you is had... is a big some, number in some places.
3: And that's why you had some senators, notably Ben Sass of Nebraska and, and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, a couple of others, saying, you know, people conceivably could be making more money while they're on unemployment than they make on their job. And therefore, maybe there's not the incentive to go back to work when that happens. And uh, Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont, uh, you know, still running for president at this moment, he came down to the floor and excoriated His colleagues, he's like, you know, how dare they, you know, they never miss an opportunity on the Republican side of the aisle to, you know, try to cut off people, you know, who are just trying to get by. He said he he said, you know, if they get a little more money during this time, he's oh, my gosh, the universe is surely going to end.
0: Let's talk about the other controversial aspect of this, the $500 billion fund that's set up now for large corporations. Uh, Another's about, what, $300 billion set aside for small uh, business loans. That was largely not controversial. But this $500 billion for larger corporations was a big deal. People saying it's another corporate bailout. How is this structured so uh, that both sides were able to, to sort of go along with this?
3: Well, this is why you were getting people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from Queens, New York, saying, you know, this is a bailout. And, you know, both sides kind of throw around these terms, you know, one person's bailout is the other person's necessity. And, and, And so this is where Democrats spent a lot of time. Uh, fighting for strictures here in the bill, you know, an inspector general or added uh, oversight uh, from the Treasury Department on how some of this would be farmed out. Here, here's always the inherent problem, here when they pass these big bills. There's always stuff in it that, that when they pass a, a big bill, first of all, and then B, they do it quickly, which even though this took about a week and a half, this was, you know, as Mitch McConnell might say, warp speed for Congress. It's not exactly built for, built for speed. This is not a sports car up here. Um, that they go back and they find that money is being misused or misspent or has unintended consequences. And even though most people, you know, both sides of the aisle would say, we absolutely had to do this. Inevitably, inevitably in the next six months, year, whenever it is, there will be things because you just don't spend $2.2 trillion and find that there's not something that's working the way it should be or that is needed. Uh, and to give people a sense of how big $2.2 trillion is, the government spends the federal government spends every every year every fiscal year about 4.3 trillion the appropriated part something we call discretionary spending is only about 1.3 trillion this is 2.2 trillion now some of that is not all brand new money to be clear
0: congress we think is going to stay out of washington until the end of april right
3: Mitch McConnell said the 20th of April, the earliest. Now, they could come back if there's an emergency. And this is where phase four comes in. And we have no idea how big that will be or what could be in that. So this is where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was saying, you know, she and the president were actually in agreement on something, on on, on pensions. That was something that's very concerned, you know, shoring up these, these pension programs. Uh, but Mitch McConnell said, let's, you know, save that for another day, maybe the phase four bill. And if you get down the railroad tracks a little bit here, again, inevitably, there will be things that they find that they need to implement. They're like, okay, we need this for this sector or the airlines need this or or what have you. I mean, that's going to be the problem. And you know what the other issue is going to be, Jared? There's going to be a lot of industries out there that aren't the obvious ones that need help. You know, the airlines and so on and so forth. I've been thinking a lot about the senators and lawmakers from Nevada where they have completely closed the Vegas Strip. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing there. And people will go in and I'm sure there's going to be some, you know, effort to, quote, rescue uh, different industries. I mean, you know, Nevada is a swing state. I'll point that out. Okay? That's that's important in the presidential calculus here. And, you know, some people who don't live in Nevada will say, how dare they bail out the casinos of all people? I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I'm just using this as an example. That's, you know, bread and butter on the table for people in Nevada. And if you have nobody coming to Las Vegas, and even after we get down the road and maybe things are starting to get better in a few months or a year, that's not the first place people are going to spend their money, Las Vegas, uh, you know, people will look askew at that. But that is an important sector of the economy, whether you like it or not in Sin City.
0: Chad Pergram, you've been uh, reporting uh, from the Hill uh, from a safe distance uh, all yes, week. but are right now. It's, you might have heard of
3: Taft-Caroline but... in the Russell Senate Park here a second ago. We're outdoors practicing our social distancing rather than sitting in the Fox News radio booth on the Senate side of the Capitol, as we do when we're in a healthier climate.
0: I want to thank you, though, and, and our colleagues up there, because it is important, even in these times, to have accountability uh, of our government. And you certainly are making sure that, that we know what's in these big pieces of legislation and walking us through the, the process, which is sometimes as important as the outcome. So, Chad, thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll talk next week.
3: Thank you, Jared.
4: That discomfort you're feeling is grief. That's the headline of an article in this week's Harvard Business Review. When I saw it, I stopped and thought, yeah, that's it. I took a sigh of relief and read. I'm Rachel Sutherland. What does grief have to do with the pandemic? Turns out, a lot. Along with the fear, the world as we know it is turned upside down. Many of us are not leaving our homes. We're not seeing dear relatives and friends. The lack of handshakes, hugs, water cooler talk, and human contact, it's a loss. There's a loss of familiar routines, for millions, the loss of jobs, and along with it, the loss of economic certainty. For many 2020 graduates, there's a loss of proms, the chance to say goodbye to classmates, and the promise of walking across a stage in cap and gown after years of hard work. Countless weddings have been postponed, along with baby showers, family reunions, you name it. We can't plan those trips we dreamed about, or even a weekend outing with friends. Then there's the really tough stuff. Families separated from sick loved ones, people dying in isolation, and the pain of having to say goodbye without a traditional funeral as gatherings are limited. And that doesn't just apply to those who have died of coronavirus. It's impacting funerals for everyone. Some have resorted to crying in parking lots outside funeral homes while watching services on tablets. There's also something called anticipatory grief. That's when you know something bad is happening, like when a loved one is diagnosed with cancer or dementia, or when your business is forced to close, not knowing if you'll ever reopen. Some may say, come on, you're over-dramatizing, get yourself together. But if you're like me, there's some good news. What you're feeling is absolutely normal. And the first step, according to grief expert David Kessler, is naming that feeling?
5: Usually anticipatory grief is a healthy thing that, you know, we spend our life knowing that someday when our parents get older, they're going to die, we're going to lose them. But what we're dealing with now is we all collectively feel this storm coming. And of course, our mind plays the worst scenario for us. Oh my gosh, my grandparents could die, friends could die, I could die. And our mind starts to do this unhealthy anticipatory grief.
4: Right. I mean, you look at it one way. We evolved, I guess, as creatures to, to be protected, right? So the lizard sunning itself out there not having a care in the world uh, a long time ago got eaten. So <laughs> in a way, it's good to have a little bit of fear, right?
5: Absolutely. And what's so unnerving about this is just like you said, our primitive mind is used to there's a bear, there's a lion, let me run, let me protect myself. We can't see this. We can't see this virus that's out there. So that's very unnerving to our primitive mind, as, you can, as we all know.
4: And so with the loss of routines, I know a lot of us that are working from home, I've been FaceTiming with friends, and there's, there's jokes saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm changing it into my nighttime pajamas for my daytime pajamas. Right, right,
5: right. <laughs> it, it
4: looks like <laughs> right. a, a lot of us could benefit from a routine. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that will help.
5: Well, in abnormal times, doing normal things seems helpful. You know, there's just something about I've noticed, you know, me getting up and shaving and me acting like I'm going to work actually makes me feel a little more normal. So sometimes when things are so strange, finding a routine, a little structure can help us. So maybe we shouldn't have our daytime pajamas on for too long.
4: Right, exactly. I mean, at least get dressed, get get a shower. I, you know, I've right. taken to trying to put on some makeup, even though no one was <laughs> it's going to see me. Um, but in all seriousness, then there's 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 stuff that is is really upsetting to hear about, and that is patients dying in isolation, that loved ones can't get to them uh, to even say goodbye, uh, and then since gatherings are limited, there's the traditional funeral is out the window. And how does that sometimes, if you don't get the proper way to say goodbye, uh, can that complicate grief?
5: Absolutely. And, Rachel, that's so insightful because the reality is we, this is so unprecedented. We've been through epidemics before with the AIDS crisis. We've been through war. We have never not been allowed to bury our dead. We have never not been allowed to go to a funeral and gather. So people, you know, I've I've had people email me who have their husband of 40 years died. They weren't able to be there. And now they're sitting at home alone because they can't have a funeral. And one of the things I had to do because I was so overwhelmed with emails that are just heartbreaking is I started an online bereavement group for everyone who's had a loss by death. You know, people also traditionally who have had a loss Three months ago, we're going to grief groups that they physically can't get to. So every day we've moved it online for and we've got people from all over the world. I was amazed the first day I did it, a thousand people showed up online.
4: Wow, that's amazing! And it's interesting to see people coming together with all this. There's an interesting Facebook group that I joined this week. It's called View from My Window, and people are just posting pictures all over the world. People staying home, uh, exactly what you see. It's everywhere from uh, from Ireland to Belgium to the, to the United States, and it's really cool because you get to you get that feeling of community even if you're feeling isolated.
5: And that's the thing we're learning in this. We're learning that being isolated does not mean we have to be disconnected, that we can still connect. And that's one of the, the takeaways I think we're learning from all of this
4: you know, with grief, you, you kind of sometimes can't turn it loose or it seems to move and change and you're feeling great one day and then down the next and then you're having a panic attack the, the next day or you're having a nightmare. Um, how can people move through all of this? You uh, co-wrote a book, correct, uh, with, about about grief. Tell us about about that, um, the five stages of grief and, and how it will run its course as we go through all of this.
5: Well, the first book that I had, I, two books you mentioned, one was with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I uh, helped her adapt her stages, the five stages you mentioned, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And uh, I also last year wrote a book that just came out a few months ago called Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. So as we go through all these stages, you know, we were in like this can't be happening, the denial. I think we're going to see some anger. I think, you know, we're going to go through, well, all right, if we stay home two weeks, then will everything get back to normal? Then we're going to have some sadness. And acceptance is where we really find our power, that this is our reality, so how can we make this work? And I think people are dealing with that. And then the sixth stage, the one I added in my last book with the permission of the Kubler-Ross family and foundation, that finding meaning, that's the one where we're going to find the good that comes out of this. And there's always post-traumatic stress, but there's also post-traumatic growth. And we want to recognize that both will happen. And we want to do our best to make sure there's more post-traumatic growth than there is post-traumatic stress.
4: Interesting. And and you talk about anger. Um, I probably spend too much time on twitter and there's a lot of people just outraged at anyone and everything and maybe that has to do with you know hitting that anger stage there's been a lot of denial people saying that this really isn't a big deal it's just like the flu you're over dramatizing i guess that could fit into denial um and and then that anger is hitting and then when it comes to the depression part it's a matter of just as you mentioned getting up getting into routine I would imagine exercise playing a key role as well. Um, Staying offline as much as possible uh, when it comes to bad news. What other tips do you have for us?
5: Well, those are some good tips to really think about, you know, how often do you need to see the news? Like I decided I'm going to watch headlines in the morning, then I'm going to watch headlines at night. The TV doesn't need to be on all day. It's too much. It's too bombarding. You know, I make sure you mentioned – Twitter and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and I'm cleaning those up. If I'm seeing, you know, people who are interacting with me that are inappropriate, saying goodbye, actually not saying goodbye, just disappearing and not following them anymore. So, you know, we really have to take care of not only our physical environment, we're all hearing how we should wash our hands. We got to make sure we're keeping our emotional environment clean because one of the things is grief magnifies our character defects. If you're usually a little angry, oh, you're going to get angrier now. You know, so we we want to try to keep ourselves in check as much as we can during these stressful times.
4: Really good information, David. I appreciate it. Where can people find you?
5: You can find me at grief.com, and if anyone in grief is needing those daily groups, they can find them at facebook.com.groups. Forward, forward slash uh, David Kessler and you can find all that information at uh, grief.com thank okay. you for doing this Rachel I well, appreciate
4: no. it thanks, thanks for being here we appreciate you and stay safe and, uh, and emotionally balanced like you sound <laughs> alright
5: I will do my best you too and I'll be seeing you on Twitter
0: That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week. Next week, well, it may look a lot like this week. Of course, that will depend a lot on the decisions of our leaders at the local, state, and federal level. The advice they get from medical professionals and public health experts. The impact COVID-19 has on this nation, on its health, both physically and economically, is likely difficult to predict. What is clear, at least for now, is that the advice is to stay put if you can social distancing to help flatten the curve. Of course, many people listening may not be able to stay put. Our doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers on the front line need our support and our thanks. A big thanks as well to the hardworking men and women still collecting garbage and recycling, stocking store shelves, and driving trucks so those shelves can be restocked. As for what we will do here on From Washington... We'll continue to provide facts and give you a direct line to the government elected to manage a crisis of this proportion to help you and your family make the best decisions. I anticipate another episode next week recorded in large measure from my basement. One benefit to more time at home is more time with family. I hope if that is your case that you are also enjoying that, spending time together either in person or on the phone, on video chats. My son, a first grader and anxious to get back to school, has been helping his old man this week. So in the theme of togetherness, he volunteered to help close us out. So before he gets the last word, let me say again, thank you for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. For all of us at Fox News Radio, I'm Jared Halpern.
5: Coronavirus have been going around for a while, so hopefully it will be gone before my birthday. So I'm Dan Halpern from Washington.